Welcome to NucleCast, the official podcast of the Anwa Deterrence Center. Each week, we bring you leading experts for a lively discussion on topics related to strategic nuclear deterrence. Our host is Dr. Adam Lowther, Director of Strategic Programs at the National Strategic Research Institute. The views of the hosts and the guests are their own. Welcome back to NucleCast. Of course, I am your host, Adam Lowther, and you are listening to another great episode. We have with us today Tom Carrico, who is a senior fellow and the director of missile defense programs at CSIS. And we're going to talk about missile defenses. We've talked about this topic over the last year a couple of times with Greg Bowen and with Carl Rayberg. But Tom has come on the show to offer us a complete picture to fill in those gaps and to give us some insights into the future, the future threat, and to help us to get a, you know, a a more full picture of where we are and where we need to be. And so let's uh, kick it off, Tom. Thanks for being here, by the way. Glad glad to be here, Adam. Thanks. Uh, Let's kick it off and let's talk about the Ukraine. And so we've seen in this in the war in Ukraine that the Russians have relied pretty heavily on missiles i mean the the Russian army is not advancing and taking territory as they had hoped, and so therefore they're using ballistic missiles and we've seen some hypersonics being used and of course, the Ukrainian military has been been gifted some pretty significant air defenses. And so what is your sort of take on this missile defense problem and what we're learning from Ukraine and the, you know, the efforts by the Ukrainians to defend against those Russian systems? Sure. Well, let me, let me make reference to, to three things to kind of answer that. Uh, the first is a phrase from Assistant Secretary of Defense, John Plum, who, you know, has referenced uh that, that missiles have become weapons of choice, not some sort of boutique thing, uh, but, but weapons of choice uh, for our adversaries to coerce and project power. Uh, and you, you really see that uh, in this conflict as you have in some other recent ones. Uh, a second reference is for, to uh, Admiral Grady, the vice chairman uh, of the Joint Chiefs. Uh, he was over to CSIS recently, and he, he made the, the remark that that, Ukraine, uh, that air defense has really become Ukraine's number one need, their number one priority. Uh, and, of course, that makes uh, sense uh, when you consider the volume of fires that they are contending with uh, from, the, from the Russians. But I would also say, to, to put those two together, uh, that missiles and, and standoff capability has also become weapons of choice for us and for our friends and allies. Uh, witness that the the other star of the Ukraine conflict uh, is not just the the NASAMs and the Patriots that are shooting down interesting things from the Russians. And by the way, Ronald Reagan is looking down and smiling uh, <laughs> at that right now. But uh, but the other stars, of course, are the HIMARS launcher and the Gimlers uh, that go into them. And so it's the offensive fires uh, that the Ukrainians are using to uh, wreak some havoc uh, on the Russians. You know, the, the polls looked at the, what the Ukrainians were able to do with 18 HIMARS launchers, and they said, okay, 
we want to buy 500. You know, <laughs> uh, you, 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 you see that and uh, it's, it's really the, the primacy of fires. And you're seeing a conversation going on, for instance, in the U.S. Army, that whereas fires used to be in support of maneuver, mm-hmm. uh, now maneuver is in support of fires, as I heard a, a four-star recently say at, a, at an Army conference. So, so, the, so it's, the, it's the primacy of fires, offense and defense, uh, that you're seeing in, in full measure in this conflict. And, I, and the third thing I'd reference is a, a, a study by my colleague Ian Williams from the CSIS Missile Defense Project, uh, who just put out a report called Putin's Missile War that rolls up kind of all the facts and figures of, uh, of what's been fired from where to where over the first year of the conflict, and then analyzes it in terms of uh, what it means. Yeah, that's, uh, I bet that's a great report. That's, uh, I'll have to, I didn't even know you'd done that. So I'll have to go take a look at that. So now as you think about sort of the things that the United States is going to take away in terms of the way we handle missile defense and defending against, so let's say Russian or Chinese ballistic missiles, what, what are those lessons? What are we exactly, I mean, in sort of specific terms, what are we going to do differently? Hmm. Well, you know, the, uh, it's really the, the proliferation of precision-guided munitions, and it's the recognition that we can't take air superiority for granted. So those are, those are the first things uh, that, you know, we certainly, or at least we thought, but, but that we did have a kind of monopoly on uh, long-range precision fires uh, of the conventional variety for, for, for a time. And now it's really been, been proliferated. Uh, think, for instance, uh, Iran's attack, uh, attack on the Al-Assad air base a couple years back, uh, their attacks on the oil fields in, uh, in Saudi and in, uh, in UAE over the past uh, several years, uh, and likewise attacks on ships, things like that. So you're, you're, you're seeing the, the globalization and the democratization of, uh, of PGMs. Uh, and in, in that respect, and some people don't like this metaphor, but I'll use it anyway, which is that we have to put ourselves in the position of, of a Saddam Hussein uh, who had to figure out how to ride out, you know, Tomahawk missiles from the United States and still, still uh, hunker down and, and uh, continue to operate. And I think it was Admiral Davidson, former Indo-PACOM commander, who made the remark five some years ago that, uh, you know, if it's fixed on the surface of the earth, it's dead. Uh, and that's sort of a necessary consequence of the proliferation of the first PGMs, but also the target and kill chain and the ISR to support them. And so that's why the Russians were reportedly able to suppress and uh, 70% of the Ukrainians' uh, fixed site air defenses in the first week of the conflict. But that which was movable or hidden or something like that uh, was able to survive. And so that also, I would say, a, a nice validation from the conflict is the importance and the salience of distributed operations that have been working into the several service concepts uh, over the past, uh, you know, five plus years. So let me, by way of an analogy, a football analogy, ask you this question. So whenever I was young, you know, I'm an Alabama graduate uh, and I love Alabama football and Alabama would win national titles, you know, seven to three, three to nothing. 10-7. And, you know, that that was sort of 
Bear Bryant style football. And then now under Nick Saban, you know, they're, you know, the, a couple of years ago, I think they averaged about 39 points a game. And even their top defenses are giving up 21 points a game. So it's a totally different game where defense couldn't, you know, no longer dominates. And so my analogy is, are we with the proliferation of drones and advanced missile systems and PGMs, are we at a point where it's really hard to defend against these systems or can we still wisely invest in ballistic missile defenses and other defensive capabilities? Or do we, like you sort of said, you know, mobility is key to the battlefield. Yeah. So, well, for ask the Ukrainians, they seem to be uh, uh, doing a, a decent job actually of, of tracking a fair number of certainly cruise missiles on a regular basis. And, and I, I like to tell folks that, you know, Homeland Cruise Missile Defense, we put out a big report on that last year. Uh, Homeland Cruise Missile Defense is a tractable problem. Uh, I, I was I was on a actually a dinner talk last night and somebody referred to to Ukraine's uh, air and missile defense as, as, you know, dealing with regional missile threats. And I thought, is it a regional missile threat or is it a national missile threat for Ukraine? Yeah. <laughs> Those kind of distinctions don't, they, they kind of break down pretty quick, actually, in terms of uh, uh, both geographic, but also, you know, physical and technical uh, uh, measures. So what I would say is, uh, yes, look, of course it's, it's possible, uh, but I just highlighted the importance of distributed operations, mobility, deception, uh, that fundamentally complicates the surveillance and targeting job of the other guys. But for those critical things, those high-value targets that you cannot move or hide, like the island of Guam, uh, and, and particular assets on Guam, rather, for those things, you need to actively defend. And you need to actively defend long enough to bring to bear uh, your other instruments of power projection, be they uh, conventional strike or, or whatever. Uh, and so that's how it contributes to deterrence. Nothing is perfect. There's no weapon system that comes out of the Pentagon that is perfect. Uh, and air and missile defense uh, uh, doesn't have that uh, quality either, but that's okay. And, you know, one of, the, one of the, the important takeaways from the Ukraine conflict, which, again, has lots and lots of missiles from a uh, major power, Russia, uh, that nevertheless uh, active air and missile defense has had a big effect. Uh, and a strategic effect. It's not that they get every missile, but it nevertheless has a big effect. Yeah, I mean, it fundamentally changes your, you know, your strike calculations. And and I was, you know, I've worked on some projects dealing with defending the missile fields, the ICBM fields. And if we just, you know, if we have a 20 to 40 percent kill ratio of incoming ICBMs, then your exchange ratio goes from, you know, two to one to four to one. And that that's that's a big deal. And that fundamentally changes whether you think, yes, I should I should do this or no, this is too hard. So defenses matter. I think it was the Carter administration that was uh, investigating a system called LOADS, as I recall, uh, for the kind of thing you're describing there. Uh, yeah, of course, it, it contributes to math. It's a cost imposition problem. If if my defenses force you to have to buy or otherwise um, uh, attribute uh, one more ICBM, you know, that's a cost imposition thing too, uh, even if they're never used, right? So, so defenses can be a cost imposition uh, thing as well. And, 
people forget that the SDI speech, the vast majority of it was about ICBM survivability. And then the so what and the therefore part was where the, uh, the Strategic Defense Initiative comes in to help complicate the Russians, uh, uh, perhaps we would hope not misperception that they could uh, that they could take these things out. And so whether it's in that respect or frankly with the Ukrainians today, I think another takeaway is that active air and missile defenses are stabilizing. They're stabilizing because it's slowing down as a speed bump in the sky. They're slowing down the Russians' uh, uh, ability to achieve air superiority. They're not carpet bombing uh, Ukrainian cities. Uh, because those pilots don't want to fly over <laughs> a Patriot uh, or an ASAMS. Yeah, it's a it's a great point. Now you mentioned Guam, and so this you know shifts us over to the Asia Pacific. And as we move to the Asia Pacific, you know one of the big concerns, of course, is there's this expectation that as if Taiwan refuses to reunify which there's all indications that they're never going to agree to that, then we're headed for conflict between China, Taiwan, and of course the United States. And therefore, you know, the, the Chinese are going to look at taking out American assets. Like you mentioned, Guam, potential, you know, Yakota air base and, you know, other, you know, assets in the region. And that leaves us the question of defending those assets and defending these against these medium range ballistic missiles that will likely rain hellfire and damnation down on airfields and bunkers and everything else. And so as we look at that, what is sort of your takeaway and your the image that you have of where we are and where we need to go to be ready in such an unfortunate event were to, to occur. What we need to do to be ready in terms of air and missile defense. Correct. Or, or yeah. So, so look, this, this is, uh, I believe the, the Biden administration's signature air and missile defense uh, effort. And I believe it's probably the most important uh, or one of the most important uh, efforts uh, of this field uh, right now, and that's the defense of Guam, which is to say the air and missile defense, 360 degrees defense of Guam. It always struck me as a little peculiar that the national defense strategy came out in 2018 and said, yay, verily, we're all about the bigs, uh, Russia and China. All the, you know, I'm old enough to remember when the return of great power competition was uh, all the rage just, just five years ago. But for some peculiar reason, uh, we didn't really adapt our air and missile defense efforts like we meant it to that problem. And so it's taken uh, a couple of years, and it was only in the Biden administration that, you know, Guam and some of these other things really showed up in the budget, notwithstanding the fact that Indo-PACOM uh, was, you know, pounding the table saying, I need to defend Guam as their number one uh, unfunded priority. So... Uh, what's that going to look like? It's going to be a mix of, of just about every air and missile defense system that, that the, currently the U.S. Army has or is about to field anew. Uh, and likewise, the, uh, the best that MDA and uh, the Navy uh, have produced. And so let me just sort of rattle off. This is all going to 
all going to go on Guam. There's going to be so much air defense on there. The island is going to tip over. A congressman asked that question once, so it's a, it's a reasonable thing to worry about, I think. Uh, exactly, exactly. So at the very low end, you're going to have uh, some cruise missile defense. The Army uh, hasn't been fielded yet. Uh, the, uh, uh, what's called the IFPIC, it's essentially an AIM-9 missile in a box. Uh, that's their forthcoming cruise missile defense. You're going to see a lot of that there. You're going to see the corresponding Sentinel radar. You're going to see the Patriot system. You're going to see the new forthcoming 360-degree radar for the Patriot called LTAMs. Uh, <laughs> that's a lot, by the way, uh, in addition to a whole new command and control system for Army Air and Missile Defense called IBCS for uh, IAMD uh, Battle Command System. So, like, the Army is fielding lots and lots of new air and missile defense systems. Uh, and they're all going to go to Guam because that's where, where they need it. In addition to all that, uh, you're going to have that sort of MDA and Navy stuff, which are essentially, uh, and by the way, THAAD, which is already there, that will uh, remain for, for the foreseeable future. And so then you're going to have Mark 41 VLSs, uh, kind of like but different uh, from the Aegis Ashore uh, that you see in Romania and Poland today. So think standard missiles of various stripes uh, in uh, vertical launch uh, system canisters uh, on the ground, both mobile and fixed, with you know, b- both ballistic missile and, in the, in the fullness of time, hypersonic, uh, hypersonic defense interceptors as well. So that's a lot. Why, why are we doing all that? Because, again, there's some things that are so important that we can't move or hide that you have to actively defend. So they're going to put some serious... Four and a half, probably five billion when we get all in uh, for that uh, that project alone. So we're at that time where we have to take a quick break. So when we come back, I want to the big question I have for all of these systems that are going to Guam is 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 it actually enough for the barrage that we're likely to see, or is it it's enough to stop onesies and twosies? But can it stop a full Chinese barrage? You're listening to Nuclecast, and we'll be right back. This episode of Nuclecast is brought to you by the AMLA Deterrence Center, whose mission is to educate Americans about the nuclear enterprise and strategic deterrence. And we're back and we're talking to Tom Carrico from CSIS and we're talking about missile defenses. And Tom, before the break, I ask you, we're putting in a lot of great stuff, but are we putting in enough to actually defeat an attack? Well, you know, uh, recurring back to our previous conversation, uh, there's never enough. Okay. Uh, If you ask the USFK commander, do you have enough patriots? Uh, he'll say, no, I've got this unfunded list of priorities that I, I don't have met. If you ask a CENTCOM commander, do you have enough uh, patriots or, or such? He'll give you the same response. There's never enough to defend as deeply as you want or to defend as many things as you want. Your defended asset list is always going to be less than your 
critical asset list in air defense speak. So bringing that to Guam, which is after all one particular place, the Ukrainians, by the way, would say the same thing. Uh, but with respect to Guam, uh, let me first uh, comment that even a limit, even a, a little bit goes a long way here in terms of raising the threshold, in terms of being stabilizing. And so you said, well, they can do the onesies and twosies. Well, you know, onesies and twosies are nonetheless acts of war. And so if you can deter the onesies and twosies, then you raise the level. Uh, as you know, Adam, and this is you know a, a thing in the nuclear world, especially. But then you go up from there. And I just described a pretty uh, long laundry list of of defenses there that are that are designed, yes, against the ballistic missiles that you targeted, but also against cruise missiles and uh, maneuverable things. And so it, it's about raising the threshold and being able to defend long enough to bring to bear everything else. It's also important to note that the things on Guam are not going to be fighting China all by themselves. And so one can imagine that in a that, won't, that there would be some indications of warning, and moreover, that there would be an ability to flow forces and to kind of put everybody on alert. Think about forward ships, right, who perhaps might be able to contribute in some, in some important way. And so, you know, we do talk a lot about jointness. <laughs> we do talk a lot of multi-domain, this, that, and the other thing. And so I think it's also important to recognize that the stuff on Guam and the defense on Guam isn't going to be existing in a vacuum either. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. Now, if I, I don't know if this is something you've, you've really looked at, but in terms of the Taiwanese being able to defend themselves, because we certainly know that the Chinese are building short, medium, intermediate range ballistic missiles to target Taiwan. Do they have the capabilities to sort of fend off these kinds of attacks? Are we selling them systems? Do they have indigenous systems? Are they buying them from, you know, the French, for example? Uh, what is the status of, if you know, the, the Taiwanese and their ability to defend? Hmm. You know, I, I once talked to a Taiwanese general five plus years ago, and I said, tell me your, the, your philosophy uh, of, of air defense, because putting aside what, they, what China has today, I mean, Taiwan's been outmatched for a long time. Everybody knows that. And what they, how they think about it is they just have to defend the brain. So they're, they're, they're not defending everything on Taiwan even uh, necessarily, but they want to defend the brain, which is to say, I feel like this is a Starship Troopers reference, <laughs> but they want to defend their command and control, right? Uh, so that they can bring to bear some kind of retaliation uh, activity as well, which is not, dis not, not so dissimilar from what we were talking about with Guam a second ago. And so would, would Taiwan uh, benefit from a, uh, a thick defense uh, on Guam, <laughs> of course it would. Um, but, uh, you know, frankly, I think there's a, there's a lot of benefit in lots of, ch uh, uh, lots of offensive fires and anti-ship fires and things like that. So you, let, me, let me go back to Guam for a second, which is that we've got all these disparate systems uh, coming together. You know, the hardest part of the defense of Guam is going to be not getting everything there and finding enough uh, soldiers uh, and sailors to operate them. 
but rather the hardest part is going to be integrating it all and integrating all these disparate fire control systems so that, for instance, you don't have three different weapon systems shooting at the same target and running out of missiles uh, all that all that much faster. And so it's the integration challenge that is uh, going to be, frankly, the forcing function for really evolving, I would say, our missile defense system, major defense acquisition program, the, the formerly known as the BMDS, uh, to, to evolve it and make it a more uh, tightly integrated uh, set of programs. I say all that because if we get that right for Guam, and I think we will, that we will be able to uh, copy and paste and apply those lessons to other parts of the world, other, other locations uh, uh, in the Indo-Pacific uh, and elsewhere. And so I referenced earlier the, the uh, Aegis Ashore facilities in in Romania, that's not, that is just, that is just BMD. That is just a ballistic missile defense uh, construct. But, but I've written for many years now about how one might think about evolving that into a, a, a layered and integrated uh, and a multi-mission, multi-threat kind of, uh, kind of defense. And I think, so I think what you're going to see on Guam, we're going to get that right. Again, the sky is getting dark with the, the, diversity and the number of all these different air and missile threats. And so we, we, the Japanese, the Australians, yes, the Taiwanese, the Europeans, we all have to wrestle with this. And uh, Guam, I think, will be a forcing function to, to get after that. Now let's turn to the capabilities of our adversaries, the Russians, the Chinese. Are there defense systems, their ballistic missile and cruise missile defense systems, do they have, you know, excellent capabilities? I know one of the things that we've written about myself and others like Chris Yaw and John Swiegel have written a really nice article, I think in Ether, that talks about the Russian fear of U.S. fifth generation fighters and their ability early in a conflict against the Russians to decimate the Russians. And, you know, the big question would be, can their, you know, anti-air and anti-missile, you know, their S-400s and, you know, if the S-500s are on at that time, you know, can they actually stop these sort of new Western air and missile defenses and other cap- or offensive capabilities do they have the kinds of good quality systems? And then I don't even know, honestly, I'd, I'm not sure what the Chinese have in terms of capabilities. So what what's sort of the state of play as far as Russia and China goes? You know, I think it's, it's interesting to me that you're even asking that question uh, because for so long uh, we've been told by very important people uh, that, you know, missile defense is a fool's errand. Uh, that Russian and Chinese missiles were so good that they were unstoppable and it just wasn't even worth uh, trying. Uh, Or conversely, that, you know, if you, I remember in the Obama administration, uh, they sent a a, a Patriot launcher, a single Patriot launcher over to Poland. It didn't even have any missiles on it. And the Russians got all hot and bothered about that. And, uh, you know, back here in, uh, in D.C., 
lots of respectable people were talking about air and missile defense as destabilizing and provocative. You know, you, you, I've heard exactly zero people make that argument uh, since the Ukraine conflict uh, began. Uh, there's a little bit of a sobering up, a little bit of coming to reality that a, you know, nothing is unstoppable. Nothing is perfect, uh, either on the offense or the defensive side. Nothing is perfect, uh, and there's a constant uh, evolution of capability on both sides. So the good news is that whether it be air-launched ballistic missiles like the so-called hypersonic uh, Kinzhal uh, or cruise missiles, you know, we can get after these things. And American and other uh, allied engineers have been getting after this for for a good bit of time. And oh, by the way, uh, our adversaries are also getting into the air and missile defense uh, game. And I like to point to the Turkey's acquisition of the Russian S-400 as really a reflection of the increased global uh, supply and demand of air and missile defenses as well. And you see the Turkey case is really uh, existing there at the, some geo, uh, very important geopolitical fault lines. So these things, they're, they're expensive, whether they're S-400s or, or what have you. Uh, but uh, uh, just the fact that these are, they're here and they're here to stay. Uh, this isn't a fool's errand. It's very real. They're having a very real effect uh, in Ukraine. I don't want to say or, or suggest that the Russian and Chinese missiles aren't very capable. Of course they are. And that's why we have to continue to evolve uh, uh, and come up with new things like the glide phase interceptor, uh, which is a hypersonic defense thing. Not that Patriot isn't awesome and the latest uh, generation of the PAC-3 MSC isn't just isn't great. Uh I love all my children, but nevertheless, you got to continue to evolve uh, past that as well. So as we come to the end of the show, uh, I've sort of been making a habit of it, of allowing my guests to use my magic lamp to make three wishes. And so as I turn my magic lamp and of course my genie, his name's Bob and you, uh, make three wishes about the future of missile defenses. What would those three wishes be? I didn't know about this. You didn't. You did, I didn't tell you about Bob. I, no, no, I didn't know about, uh, about the lamp. Um, all right. Well, let me, let me, the first two I think are, are relatively easy. Um, the first one is uh, that the, the next generation interceptor. That's the, the, the big ICBM killer. Uh, the Missile Defense Agency is on a good path for that. That was kind of approved formally by Cath Hicks in 2021. We're now kind of two years into that. Uh, basically, just that that acquisition uh, goes, uh, goes well. I think it will. Uh, but uh, my wish is not for that so much as it is that we make sure to prioritize capability and reliability over speed and capacity. Uh, it's the impulse a lot in the, the missile defense world to more and faster and like, slow down. Let's make sure this gets right. We, we can't afford to not get it right. Second wish is on the hypersonic defense front. Um, and that is uh, two things. One, we have to have space sensors uh, for with fire control quality track. I don't just want a high resolution video of the big hypersonic threat coming in, I want to be able to have a sufficiently good track to fire something at it. And so uh, there's a 
what's called the hypersonic and ballistic tracking space uh, system that's going to be orbited this year. And we'll have some demonstrations for that, HBTSS. Uh, so hopefully that will go well. And likewise, the, the corresponding interceptor, the glide phase interceptor. Look, if it was up to me, I would, I would, I'd award it to both contractors on the simple ground that the hypersonic threat is big and growing and, uh, and uh, we need uh, more than one silver bullet uh, to get after it. And then, boy, uh, third wish, I don't know. I, I guess I would say that I'm going to get really nerdy here. Uh, my wish is that the, uh, the Trump administration's uh, directive type memoranda from 2019, which I would say impeded the Missile Defense Agency's acquisition authorities, notwithstanding the language in their own Missile Defense Review, uh, my wish uh, is that that be rescinded. Um, uh, consistent, I will say, with language that appears in this week's uh, House uh, Strategic Forces Subcommittee mark uh, requiring exactly that. So I know I really get, went uh, nerdy and easy <laughs> on there, but I think about it. All right. Well, unfortunately, we are out of time. But Tom, thanks for joining us. You, you added to the fullness of our understanding of missile defenses. So that was great. It, and we talked about topics we have not talked about before. And so it's it's always good to sort of get a sense of, you know, we've, we've talked about uh, nuclear reactors at FOBs. We've, I mean, we've, we've talked about plutonium pit manufacturing. We, we talk about lots of stuff on Nuclecast. So, and it's, it's filling out the, you know, the audience here is a sort of a disparate group, but they're all interested in nuclear topics. And, and at least for them, as for me, you know, I'm getting a lot smarter on a lot more topics. So, and you just helped us do that today. So thanks for that. Well, thanks for the opportunity, Adam. Uh, I always learn listening to you as well. And I'll just uh, close out by quoting, uh, former Army Chief of Staff, Mark Milley, who said, uh, none of this matters if you're, if you're dead, and that's why you need air defense. <laughs> Excellent. All right. Well, thanks to Tom, and thanks to you, the listeners, and we'll see you on the next episode of Nuclecast. Well, it was good to see Tom again and good to talk uh, missile defenses. And I, what I liked is, you know, we've had a, Greg Bowen and Carl Rayberg have talked missile defense. And so Tom talked about some different areas and aspects of it. And that was, that was really good. And it sort of fills it in. It's, it's not a topic that I, you know, I, I know some, but I wouldn't say it's a specialty of mine in, in any stretch. And so I'm always interested to hear what these other folks have to say and, and to get a better sense of how it fits and where it fits. And, you know, Tom really sort of helped with that and sort of gave a 30,000 foot level look at some of these these key issues. And so it was a it was a good show, good contribution. I hopefully you enjoyed it, too. This has been a production of the Anwa Deterrence Center. Our executive producer is Kimberly Charrington. And this episode has been engineered and mixed by David Grunthal. Follow the show on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at Nuclecast. Listen, follow, and review the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.